like last time, I'd like to invite you to open to the Gospel of John, not 2 Corinthians 13, although that is our theme text for this uh, series um, of communion with God. And we are looking at how to have communion with God. And when we say God, we mean the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked at how we have communion with the Father. And today, we're going to focus on the second person, uh, communion with the Son. Um, and this will be part one of part two with communion with the Son, because this really was too much. <laughs> I had to break it up in two because it was just too much for us to, to look into and to share. And um, for those of you visiting us, um, commun- when I say communion with God or communion with the Trinity, I'm just speaking about a, a relationship with Him, with every person of the Trinity, really. A communion, the word communion literally means what we have in common, what we can both give and share with someone. Um, so communion is that what we, what we receive from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that which we give back to Him. And that's really what communion is. And like any relationship, to have true communion with God does take time, effort, planning, discipline, submission, and all of those things. And, and I really pray that even as we sung right now that your desire would be to know God, to know the Father, to know the Son, and to know the Spirit intimately. So our, our, our text we, we base the series on is this text, and I'm going to read it for us. Um, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we, when we think of communion with the Father, we think specifically of communion with him in love, his love for us. Remember, we saw that love is to be specifically attributed to the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Now, as we turn our attention to the Son, we see that one that the attribute that stands out of him is his grace. So we have communion with the Son in his grace specifically. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, that might, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that the Son doesn't love us, right? Or that the Father is not gracious. Okay, so it's not, that's not true. All three persons of the Trinity share the same divine essence and therefore all of God's attributes equally. So, but when we think of the persons of the Trinity, we see that they have different roles in our salvation. The Father specifically was the one who sent the Son. The Son was specifically the one who died. And the Spirit is specifically the one who indwells us, opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ. So, and when we look at Scripture, we do see that when it comes to the Lord Jesus, that it's specifically grace that stands out. So just a few verses. Look at, look at John chapter 1. So your Bible should be open now at the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 verse 14. Look at John 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just a few verses down, verses 16 to 17. For from His fullness we have all received grace and Upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's another example, uh, the very famous 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 9. 
Paul, Paul is praying. He says, three times I've pleaded with the Lord. Now here we'll see the Lord specifically here refers to the Lord Jesus. So he's pleading with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it's specifically the Lord Jesus and his grace that strengthens us. Another verse, 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, it simply says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you get the picture? So when we think of Christ, what stands out of him is his grace. Now we might ask, what specifically, when we look at Jesus, where can we look to to see his grace more fully? Well, the simple answer is everything. His person and his work. Everything he is and everything he does show us his grace. Think of it. His incarnation. Look at his perfect obedience. Look at his sacrifice on the cross. Look at his resurrection. Look at his high, his ascension. Look at his high priestly intercession for his own. And you see nothing but his grace for his own. That we may now boldly approach the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to just simply look at every aspect of that, of the Lord Jesus, his person and his work, and then apply that to ourselves and see how we can have communion with him. So today we're going to look at three of them, and then next Sunday look at more. I'm not sure how many more, but so today just three, next Sunday more. Okay, so the first aspect of Christ we need to consider is the all-important incarnation of Christ, his incarnation. What we mean by incarnation is that the Son of God became a man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. Therefore, only the Son has two natures. So the Father only has one nature. The Spirit only has one nature. But the Son has two natures. He has a divine nature, which he shares with the Father and the Spirit. And he has a human nature. He is truly God and he is truly man. Now, the importance of the incarnation cannot be overstated. Without the incarnation, we have no salvation, we have no gospel, because only the God-man can save us. We see the incarnation in verses we've just read, but I want you to consider now John 1 verse 1. So just look up to John 1 verse 1, and then we're going to read verse 14 again, just to clarify this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. The Word is God, that's crucial. He's not a second God. He is God. And this word, who is God himself, took on a human nature like ours. In Now we read again, just the beginning of verse 14. And the word became flesh. That same word of verse 1 in verse 14 has become flesh and dwelt among us. Now you might ask, why? Why did the son have to become a man to save us? Why is it important for him to be both God and man? Well, as God, he has the power and the authority to save us and to forgive us of all our sins. And as man, he has the ability to represent us on the cross, to fulfill every demand of the law. John Owen wrote that it's as if only Jesus can put one hand on God to represent him and his other hand on man to represent man and so reconcile both. He is the mediator between us and the Father, right? Lose one of these sides of his natures. Lose his deity or lose his humanity and you have no salvation left. 
That's why John could write so strongly that if someone denies one of these aspects of Jesus, you, don't, you no longer have Christianity left. Just listen to 1 John. So this is now one of his letters in his first epistle, 1 John 4 verse 2. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come, what? In the flesh is from God. So here he's emphasizing the, the humanity of Christ. That's important. But he says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So now the implications of this, the comfort that the incarnation gives us is also uncountable. But let me highlight just a few, which I think is most obvious. Okay, so here's the first implication of his incarnation. Number one, the incarnation shows us exactly what the Father is like. The incarnation shows us exactly what the Father is like. The incarnation means, as Michael Reeves wrote, that there is no God in heaven that is unlike Jesus. There is no God in heaven that is unlike Jesus because Jesus is not a second God. He is God. So when you look at how Jesus thinks, acts, and lives, you see exactly what the Father is like. Now turn to the very well-known passage in John 14 with me. John 14, verses 8 to 9. John 14, verses 8 to 9. John 14, verse 8 says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Indeed, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. As a glove fits a hand hand perfectly. So Christ shows us what the Father is like. Now this means very practically that whatever you would have expected to receive from Jesus, you can expect from the Father. Whatever you would have expected from the Son, you can expect exactly the same from the Father. Look at how merciful the Son of God was towards sinners. See his heart. See his acceptance. His mercy on every sinner that repented. Every sinner that humbled himself or herself before the Son. Look at that prostitute, for example, that lived a full life of sin. That prostitute who lived in sexual immorality. Yet when she fell at the feet of Jesus wetting his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair, what did Jesus say to her? Your sins are forgiven. All of her sins in that moment, completely gone and forgiven by the gracious Son of God. Look at the man on the cross. The man on the cross, he has nothing left to give to God by way of a holy life, by way of saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to make it right. He's, he's, he's busy dying. He's a murderer and a thief. He's, he's dying on the cross because he deserves it. He's on that cross because he deserves it. And then he just simply looked at Jesus by faith and says, remember me. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. What did, what did Jesus do? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. 
Look at how Christ dealt with the sick, with the demon-possessed, with those who are hungry both physically and spiritually. Did he refuse any who came to him with humility, any who came with him with, with a hunger and a desire for righteousness? Did he cast any off who were looking for his grace? I have yet to read of one example where someone humbled themselves before the Lord Jesus and he said no to them. Now, connect the dots. <laughs> connect it. That's exactly how the Father is. So if you expect that from Jesus, then that's what you should expect from the Father. That's the same treatment, the same acceptance you would, you would receive from the Father when you come to him in humility and in repentance. Remember the prodigal son, the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? It was the father that ran to him. And he says, Jesus was telling that to the Pharisees, like, you are missing the point. There is more joy in heaven. There's more joy before the angels. And there's more joy before the father over one sinner that repents than over 99 who does not repent. One sinner that comes, there's joy. Now, that's good news for weary, guilty, sin-ridden people like you and me. All you have to do is to humble yourself to receive it. And that's the biggest reason why people don't receive it. People are proud. People don't want to humble themselves, confess that they are sinful, that they can do nothing to save themselves but by grace, and therefore they refuse to come. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think that we are not that poor in spirit than we really are. We don't think we're really that sick than we really are. So we say, okay, I know I have a problem, but I will fix it myself. I will fix me. I will try harder. Tomorrow, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to conjure up my willpower, and from now on, I'm going to be good. Now, of course, few of us would admit that that's what we actually think deep down in our hearts, but Here's the simple test we can take is just to ask the simple question. Why do you believe you would go to heaven one day? Why do you believe that you will go to heaven one day? What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you have to think of that question? Now, when you start to think of all the things you have done, right? Well, surely for someone like me who have studied hard and worked hard and I'm here at church and I'm trying very, very hard. I know my Bible, read my Bible. And so surely I, the very worst I can say to you is that you are not a Christian. And the very best I can say of you is that you are greatly deceived. But either way, you need help. You need to change the way you think, Right? Listen to, again, John Owen. He wrote very helpfully, he says, to receive Christ is when the soul agrees to take Christ on his terms. For Christ to save him as, uh, for Christ to save him and how he will, and says, Lord, I would have had you and salvation in my own way and in my own terms, partly by my own efforts, by my own good works, but now I'm willing to receive you and to be saved in your way, merely by grace. End quote. That's humbling, and it's incredibly good news. <laughs> so it's both painful in a weird way, giving up on you, and incredibly freeing if you understand it. Salvation begins when you give up on yourself, when you realize that you are poor in spirit. You have nothing to offer to God but your sin. 
And when you come like that with empty hands, you know when Jesus said, if you don't become like one of these children, you will never enter the kingdom. Now, some people think that means you have to be like innocent like a child and, you know, they just believe anything. They're like gullible. That's not what that means. When Jesus says, you must look at that passage, it says, whoever receives the kingdom like one of these little ones. That's how you must receive the kingdom. What can a baby do? but receive. What can an infant do but receive? Otherwise, the baby dies. And that's how you receive salvation. Like an infant, Lord, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I need you 100%. So when you abandon every effort to save yourself and you come to Christ with an empty hand and say, Lord, save me, that's when he saves you. So the first implication of Christ's incarnation is that you can expect the same treatment from the Father than you would expect from the Son when you come with humility and with repentance. And here's the second one. The incarnation helps us to see that Jesus is all we need in this life and in the life to come. So the incarnation helps us to see that this God-man is everything you and I need. What do you need? Do you need wisdom? Only God can give. Do you need forgiveness of your sins? Do you need strength which only God in his grace can give you? Well, then come to Christ as God. Come to him as God. He has all authority to forgive you. He has has the grace to strengthen you. His grace is sufficient for you. But do you need someone to sympathize with you because of your sufferings? Do you need someone to understand the depths of your emotions and your pain and your hurt, your longings? Do you need someone you could rest your head on and just say, listen, and hear the person say, listen, I know how you feel because I myself have been in the same situation that you have been in. Then go to Christ as man. He is a man who is like us, who have suffered like us. He is our sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in all ways yet without sin. He is called the man of of sorrows, who knows what it feels to be treated unjustly, to be forsaken and forgotten, to be backstabbed by some of your best friends, to suffer incredible pain in your physical body. He knows. Again, John Owen wrote, he says, so because of his fullness, Christ has all sufficiency in himself to be to the soul all that the soul desires. Is the soul dead? Christ is its life. Is the soul weak? Christ is its strength. Is the soul ignorant? Christ is its wisdom. Is the soul guilty? Christ is its righteousness and justification. Many poor creatures are aware of their needs but do not know where to find the remedy. Indeed, whether it be life or light, power or life, all is wrapped up in Christ. So, beloved, go to him for every need which the all-sufficient Savior, the God-man, can give you. Now, one obstacle for us that keeps us from going to him with all of our needs and all of our desires is the suspicion that he really doesn't love us. So very similar than last week, we looked at last week how we, the greatest burden you can lay on the Father is to believe that he doesn't love you. And it's similarly here. If you have that sneaky suspicion that maybe he just isn't for me, Therefore, allow me to say one word about how Christ feels about you. If you are saved, if you have repented and put your faith in Christ, this is true of you. And we only need to look at one verse, one picture 
for us to see it is Ephesians 5, verse 29 to 32. Passage about marriage, and he says, No one ever hated his own flesh, now look at this, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says, marriage refers to Christ's relationship with his people. In other words, whatever you might expect from a very good husband, you can expect even more from Jesus, who is the perfect husband. So whatever you can expect from a good earthly man, Christ is better. (laughs) If the shadow is beautiful, how much more beautiful is the substance? Now, if you look at weddings and marriages, there's beauty in that. You see a beauty, but that's the shadow. How much more beautiful, how much more gracious, how much more good would be the Son and His love for us? Now, I had the privilege of, in the short time of the year, already being at two weddings. And Lord willing, there's going to be a lot more coming. Okay, but And one of the highlights of a wedding is simply looking at how the bride walks in. That moment when you see the bride walking in and then you you first stand in awe of the bride and then you stand in awe of how the bridegroom looks at the bride, (laughs) okay? And that's just beautiful. That affection, that love, that yearning, that love the bridegroom feels for his bride is something you just have to see for yourself. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And again, that's the shadow of how Jesus feels about us as his people. That's how he loves us. That, so to say it like this, Christ delights in us as a bridegroom delights in his bride. That's what you need to believe about Jesus' love for you. He doesn't find his bride irritating. He doesn't merely endure his bride. Love is not irritable, right? He loves her because he loves her by grace. His love for her makes her beautiful. In other words, Jesus doesn't love us because we are beautiful. His love makes us beautiful. It transforms us. And therefore, beloved, go to the lover of your soul. Go to him frequently. Go to him with all your troubles, all your anxieties. Rest in his presence of love for you, his presence of grace of protection, of affection, of love. Let your heart fully belong to him and to him alone. Now, of course, what makes his incarnation good news for us is what he did for us in his sinless life and sacrificial death. And that's the next two things we're going to look at. So first, we look at his sinless life. Secondly, his sinless life. Christ never sinned. This is to state it negatively. And I think sometimes we we misunderstand what his holiness really meant because we only think, okay, he just didn't sin. But it's much, much more than that. There's a second part of his obedience we need to say, and that is that he didn't just not sin. He obeyed perfectly. Paul Washer uses this famous illustration when he says, he asked this question, what would you say is the biggest sin? And his answer is, well, Probably breaking the greatest commandment, which is what? 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, with our sin still living in us, and our our limitness, and our finiteness, there's never been one millisecond that you and I have kept that commandment perfectly. Not one millisecond of our entire lives that we have loved God with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our minds. But listen, Jesus has never stopped loving the Father like that. Never once has his heartbeat skip a beat where he did not love the Father with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his affection. Not one word, one thought, one action was ever taken by Christ with perfect love for the Father and perfect love for his neighbor. Again, John Owen says, The righteousness of Christ as mediator in his human nature was the absolute, complete, exact conformity of Christ's soul to the will, mind, or law of God. It's the exact conformity to the will, mind, and law of God. The actual obedience of Christ was his willing, cheerful obedience to every duty or command that God required of man. I want to highlight one word out of that quote. His obedience was cheerful. (laughs) Now there we all fail, right? Sometimes we kind of get it right externally to obey God. But inwardly there's that groaning and that complaining and that little bit of hesitancy and this fight in ourselves. But true obedience is not just when we conform outwardly to the commands of God. It is when we inwardly find joy and pleasure to do what God tells us. And remember, what did Jesus say about the will of God or doing the will of the Father? He says, it's like food. So my food is to do the will of my Father. I enjoy that. I can do that and even I can skip a meal, a physical meal, because I'm so satisfied with doing the will of my Father. That's my joy. Now, there's a counter side of this. Before we apply this is number three, the sin-bearing death of Christ. The sinless Son of God went to the cross and became sin for us. That cup he was praying three times for the Father to remove was the cup of God's wrath over our sins. And because of God's perfect justice, Jesus was punished exactly what every one of us deserved. So that passage that says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's a passage on justice. It means the punishment must fit the crime. So you shouldn't, pay, you shouldn't punish someone more than they deserve. You should punish someone less. And that was applied to Christ on the cross. He wasn't punished more or less. The punishment fit the crime. On the cross, Christ satisfied the wrath of God for countless number of souls. Now we may understand how this applies to us. Now for you and me to be truly forgiven, truly righteous in the sight of God, two things need to happen with us. First, Our sins need to be removed from us. Our sins need to be punished. And secondly, we needed to obey God perfectly with a perfect life of perfect obedience. And until we have done both of those things, no one goes to heaven. Until all our sins have been punished and until we have perfectly obeyed God. And that's exactly what Jesus provides for us as we put our faith in him. And the the famous verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Here's an Old Testament picture of this. I love this. Zechariah 3 verse 3 to 5. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So you see, those two things need to happen. Your filthy garments need to be removed from you, taken away. And you need to be reclothed with pure clothes, with white robes, right? And you see, all of that is what Jesus gives us. Who could remove our sin? Who could give us a righteousness where we have obeyed the Father perfectly? Only Jesus can. This is where all of our communion with God must begin with true rest in this grace that he has given by saying, Lord, I trust in you to remove my filthy garments and I receive as, a, as that child receives as a free gift your righteousness. And I believe that's what Jesus had in mind primarily when he said, come to me, all who labor, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Rest from trying to earn God's salvation. Rest from trying to trying to pay for your own sins, the sins that you feel guilty about. It's like, okay, I'm going to wash myself. I'm going to try and punish myself to not feel this bad anymore. Rest to know that God loves you despite you, that God loves you and accepts you because of what Christ has done in your place. And that's what we call the forgiving grace of Christ. We come for this cleansing and this forgiving grace, but then we also come for the transforming grace of Christ, the grace to change us, the grace to help us not to do the same sins over and over again. And I think many Christians stop at the first. We stop at, Lord, forgive me of my sins. But we don't pray, Lord, help me not to do it again. Lord, give me the next time. Please, Lord, give me your Holy Spirit. Remind me of scriptures. Remind me of verses and truth that I don't do this again against your name and your goodness. And what should pain you about your sin is that it breaks your fellowship with him. You see, so you can never lose your salvation. You cannot be ripped out of the hands of Christ or the Father. But as we live in our sin, we lose our fellowship with him. We lose our communion with him. And so every time we sin, it grieves us because our fellowship with the one we love has been broken. So Lord, help me to stop sinning because I I don't want to stop the sweet communion I enjoy with you as I walk in holiness and walk in obedience to you. You see, so to put it another way, what refreshes us in the presence of Jesus is his grace. That refreshes us when we come to him as sinners and we just rest in his presence and his grace. But you know what refreshes Jesus in our hearts? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So our hearts must be like a garden of entertainment, right? Of preparing the table for the Lord Jesus. Like, Lord, come, come dine with me. That the table has been set. Here's the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And so as we, we desire better fellowship with the Lord Jesus, we put off our sin. And we say, Lord, I want to know you more. And consider with me in closing the last verse, John 15. The one we read also last week, but just read it again with me. John 15, verse 9 to 10. It says... As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So how do we abide in the love of Christ? How do we experience His love for us, His fellowship, His communion? By obeying Him, by submitting to His Lordship, saying, Lord, I, I surrender. Just like Christ has never stopped abiding in the love of the Father because He's always done what the Father asked, always done what He said. And so when we imitate Christ, follow him in humble submission, we know we are his disciples. We can experience communion and closeness and intimacy with him. And so even as we prepare ourselves to have communion shortly, remembering Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross uh, and resurrection, we also search our hearts with questions like these. What is robbing me of my communion with him? What sin am I content to live with? Where do I run for comfort, for joy, or for refreshment where do i go is it to the lover of my soul perhaps what has been stopping you from communion with christ is the lie that he does not love you that he's not for you that he won't accept you if you don't first clean up yourself and cast that lie in the dustbin and come to him as you are or perhaps that you think he doesn't delight in you as a husband delights in his bride, right? We, that lie we need to stop believing and say, Lord, no, I, I trust in you as the all-sufficient Savior who do delight in me by grace. And so we come to have communion with him. Let's pray. Let's just use a short moment of silent prayer. Let's just use this time to respond to the Lord in prayer and pray to Him. Let's use this time. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come to you as we are and just confess our sins to you, Lord, and know that you are gracious. Lord, as we humble ourselves and come to you, we know that there's never been a sinner that you've refused. And so thank you, Lord, that we can simply come and rest. All of us who are laboring and heavy burdened, we can just come into your presence and receive your love freely. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us first, that no one took your life from you, but you've laid down your life willingly. Thank you that both your sinless perfection and your sin-bearing death has been given to us as a gift, that we can stand before the Father clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we want to love you more, Lord. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, please you, may you be glorified in our worship as we remember your death on the cross. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.